following program is brought to you by Caltech. Our first speaker is Eric Ford. He's from the uh, University of Florida. He received his bachelor's degree in physics and mathematics from MIT and his PhD in astrophysical sciences from Princeton. Please help me give a warm welcome to Eric as he discusses how the discovery of exoplanet sy uh, systems are helping us to better understand the formation of our own solar system. Eric? Good evening. It's great to be here. I'm going to tell you a little bit about how extrasolar planets and their discovery has revolutionized our own understanding of our own solar system. As Bill Nye posed the question, where did we come from? We've studied our own solar system for hundreds of years, and in the past few decades, we've gone into immense detail with planetary missions that travel to individual planets, take detailed measurements. But you can imagine trying to understand people by studying one family. There's such a great diversity of human beings on this planet that you wouldn't have the whole picture. And once you enabled yourself to go look at people beyond your own family, you could begin to appreciate a lot more about the human species. In the same way, we're beginning to do that by expanding beyond our solar system to planetary systems around other stars. Even within our own solar system, there's quite a large range of planet sizes. For example, the giant planets Jupiter and Saturn, much larger than the rocky planets of the inner solar system, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. Then there's sort of some ice giant, intermediate planets in size, but further out from the giant planets. And this has been what we've been studying for a long time, trying to understand why are the rocky planets close to the sun? Why are the ice giants far away from the sun? What determined that Jupiter is a giant planet 300 times more massive than the Earth? And why is the Earth like it is? Another set of properties that we have measured from our own solar system are the size of the orbits, the distances between each planet and our own sun. On the right-hand side here, we see the, the big picture with Neptune, Uranus, Saturn, and Jupiter. On the left-hand side, a zoom-in of the inner solar system. Jupiter, the asteroid belt, and the three uh, inner planets. Here's a, an animation showing the asteroids. So we, recently, we've been studying small bodies in the solar system, dramatically increasing understanding of the small bodies that give rise to things like the Earth-crossing asteroids in red here, this small fraction of the asteroid belt that can come in and have very interesting consequences for life on Earth. And then on the other side, we see the Kuiper Belt objects. Those objects, asteroids like, let's see if we can play that one again, uh, that are much further from the sun, out typically beyond the orbits of Neptune, another part of the solar system that we know precious little about and are increasing our knowledge of greatly by studying these distant bodies, but learning about the origins of our own solar system. But recently, we've learned a lot by studying exoplanets. To help put that in perspective, I've made a little timeline where I've picked out some highlights 
of some of the key discoveries in the advancement of modern science and understanding our planetary system. To get started, I'll look at the uh, early 1500s with Nicholas Copernicus revitalizing the idea that the Earth went around the Sun as opposed to the Sun going around the Earth. This idea had been around since the Greeks, but for whatever reason, the astronomers of the time modeled the solar system with the planets, the Sun and the Moon, all going around the Earth. Copernicus encouraged people to consider this alternative model, but for a long time, the difference was largely a matter of debate, philosophy, worldview. It wasn't until uh, over 50 years later that Galileo took a telescope, pointed at the heavens, observed things such as the pockmarks on the moon, the little sunspots on the sun, the moons of Jupiter going around Jupiter, and then finally the phases of Venus, which gave conclusive evidence supporting the model that the planets went around the sun rather than around the Earth. Fast forward over 100 years later, before the first new planet beyond those known to the ancients was discovered. Uranus was actually observed by Galileo and others, but wasn't recognized as a planet at the time. A good bit later, the discovery of Neptune. In this case, there were nice theoretical predictions of where it should be, coupled with observations, going out looking where they were told to look. Combining those two, were able to detect uh, the final planet in our own solar system. So at that point, we now have completed our own solar system and have been studying those planets in detail ever since. It wasn't until 1993 that we had the detection of the first planet around another star. It came from an unlikely source. It turns out to be orbiting the remnant of a once massive star that's spinning rapidly, emitting radio waves that pulse at the Earth and were detected by a radio astronomer observing from this giant dish in Puerto Rico. Although the first exoplanet, it's so bizarre around this other uh, type of star, a pulsar, that it's quite different than the planetary system we live in, and it's sort of a testament to the power of planet formation to create planets and have them survive in even the most hostile environments. A few years later, astronomers announced the discovery of 51 Pegasi, the first planet around a sun, a sun like the star like our own sun. This observation was also quite fascinating because it was wildly different than what had been expected. Just a few years earlier, astronomers had got together, made a plan for finding planets around other stars, but this one didn't follow that plan at all. It came out of left field. Astronomers had been perfecting the techniques to study binary stars, were able to push them so precise they began to detect planets. But this planet, although as massive as Jupiter, turned out to be just 1% the distance between its host star. That very closeness has raised a lot of questions that I'll come back to later. Several years later, this method took another step forward as they detected the first set of multiple planets orbiting a sun-like star. Such systems are particularly powerful because you know that each of these planets had to form from the same material, the same building blocks, had to go into all these different planets. Whatever happened to one of them happened to the others. And so we're able to use such systems to test the models of planet formation and try to understand what are these plants made of, how do they come about. Several years later, another major breakthrough was recognizing that sometimes planets pass in front of their host stars and cast a shadow that passes over the Earth. If you're just 
able to look at those stars just as the planet passes in front and see the slight decrease in brightness as the planet passes in front. You can get information about the planet's size, combine that with other techniques, learn about its density and hence its composition. It also provides a great opportunity to study slight deviations in the amount of light blocked as a function of color and recognize atoms such as sodium, potassium, and molecules such as water, carbon dioxide, and methane, like we'll hear about later from Mark Suck. Most recently, an extremely exciting development has been the launch of the Kepler mission early last year. The Kepler mission is NASA's first mission really dedicated to searching for exoplanets. It's going to be able to study the frequency of Earth-like planets, those around sun-like stars in their habitable zones, and tell us how common are planets like our own Earth, and how common are they as a function of distance and the type of their stars. That will allow us to design a whole new era of space missions, ground-based instruments, to go out and characterize these planets, learn more about them, and answer some of those questions that we'd really like to get at. So let's come back to the question that Bill asked earlier. What, what, how did we get here? Where did we come from? For a long time, the answers to those questions came from studying the same eight planets again and again in more and more detail. And as much as we learned about those eight planets, we were still focused on that one family. Now that we've broadened our view to include nearly 500 planets around other stars, we're able to step back and recognize which of those features turn out to be unique to our solar system, which of those are common to planets in general. And so they provide new inspirations for people who develop theories of planet formation to change their models, adapt their models, to explain this newfound diversity. Here I'll show a simulation of star and planet formation. The colors you see represent the density of gas in a star-forming region, clumps and filaments going around. In the very center, you see what's going to become a star and perhaps even a planetary system. As we gradually zoom in, you'll see that there's waves being stirred up by this uh, nebula that's going to have that material collapse to form the star and perhaps planets. And those fragments that are going to collapse, clusters of gas that can become massive enough, might be one way that giant planets form, similar to stars, but perhaps on a smaller scale, as the different clumps of gas shear, some fall into the star, some manage to survive, uh, at least for the durations of this particular simulation. We're not sure whether this mechanism operates often or just occasionally or even ever, but it's one of those ideas that we're now being able to test with the discovery of planetary systems around so many other stars beyond our own. Here I show you an overview of many of the planets we've discovered. On the horizontal axis here, I show the distance between the host star and the planet. On the vertical axis, the mass of the planet. So for reference, here's Earth, here's Jupiter, and the yellow dots show many of the planets discovered by the various exoplanet searches over the past 15, 20 years. One thing you can recognize quite rapidly is that the range of distances of these exoplanets is quite uh, more extended than those of the planets in our own solar system. We have some planets that are even further away than Neptune, but lots that are much closer to their host star than even Mercury in our own solar system. There appears to be a, a clustering of planets here and perhaps another pileup near the distances between the Sun and the Earth. 
These giant plants may have gaseous envelopes that make it inhospitable for life, but they might be able to harbor moons that do persist near the uh, habitable zone where there's able to have liquid water on the surface of moons with a small atmosphere like the Earth. But how do the planets get to those wide range of distances? Did they form there or did they move there? Many planetary theorists believe that most of those planets formed at distances more similar to the giant planets of our own solar system, but then migrated inwards or outwards to where we observe them today. One of the leading models to explain how those planets would be able to move over such large distances involves the planet stirring up a disk of gas, creating waves of density that torque the planet, clearing out gaps around the planet where the material creeps onto the planet to give it its mass. And as the planet sculpts the disk, the disk then acts back, pushing the planet inwards towards the star or outwards to the outer regions of that planetary system. So we're very excited about being able to study more and more of these systems to learn about how the planets move after they've originally formed to end up at their positions today. Another property of the solar system that contrasts remarkably with those of the exoplanets is the shape of the orbits. In our own solar system, most of the planets travel on orbits that are roughly circular. The distance between the star and the planet stays nearly constant throughout its year. On the other hand, the exoplanets often travel in highly elongated orbits. One of the most dramatic examples of this is shown here with a planet that comes all the way out beyond the orbit of Venus to a distance comparable to that habitable zone where you might even be able to condense water on a moon of this planet. But then it plummets in to just a few stellar radii where the temperature heats up to thousands of degrees. Such extremely elongated orbits appear to be rare, but slightly less elongated ones are quite common. And those raise this question, how did those planets get such elliptical and elongated orbits? One of the leading theories to explain how the planets acquired such elongations has to do with the way the planets formed among a nursery with too many planets for their own good. Even if they started on nice concentric circles, sort of like the Greeks imagined our solar system should have had been, if it had too many planets growing too massive, eventually some of the weaklings get thrown out into space, leaving behind just the ones that we see today, and those can be on elongated orbits from those violent interactions from the early planetary system. To illustrate that, here's an animation of one particular multi-planet system, that first one that was discovered around a sun-like star, Upsilon Andromeda. Here you see the two of the known planets as well as an additional hypothetical planet. As we zoom around, eventually you'll see that two of the planets out here will have a close encounter, do a quick little dance, and one of those planets will get thrown out, ejected to float through space for the rest of the universe. If this movie went on a hundred times longer and you watched for tens of thousands of years, you'd see the interactions between these two planets cause the shapes of the orbits to change. The outer one becoming more circular, the inner one becoming more elongated. And that's the state we observe this system in today. Another remarkable property of the exoplanetary systems has to do with the precise arrangement of the planets. And here there's actually an interesting analogy to our own solar system. If we look at the Galilean moons, the large moons around Jupiter discovered by Galileo, Three of them, Io, Europa, and Ganymede, participate in an intricate dance where the orbital periods are very nearly a ratio of one to two to four. So Io goes around four times for every two times Europa goes around Jupiter, for every one time Ganymede goes around Jupiter. 
This is not just a numerical curiosity, but as important for explaining why the orbits of those moons stay slightly elongated, not perfectly circular. And the tidal heating that goes into EO in particular drives the planet or the moon-wide volcanism that spews off sulfur ions, creating the nice red uh, images and also the radio emissions from Jupiter that could be detectable from other stars. So on the cover of this week's science is one of the recent discoveries from the Kepler mission, Kepler 9, which contains two planets which participate in a resonance where one planet goes around twice for every one time the outer planet goes around. Very similar to these uh, Galilean satellites around Jupiter. By studying this dance, astronomers are able to measure precisely the properties of these planets and get clues into how these planets may have formed and migrated. We want to use these systems to understand more about how the frequency of planet migration, scattering, and all the processes that have gone into sculpting exoplanetary systems and how our own solar system fits into that picture. So turning back to the question of where did we come from, before we started finding exoplanets, astronomers had the idea the solar system planets formed as they were in the orbits they are today and lasted there for four and a half billion years. Today we have a very different view. We believe the solar system was born with planets packed more closely together, perhaps even with some additional planets that we don't no longer have in our solar system. But with time, the planets became uh, interacted with each other, managed to either eject planets or at least stir each other up, migrated through the disk that those planets formed from, created elongated orbits such as seen uh, here. And Neptune in particular probably had its orbit circularized through interacting with the abundance of Kuiper belt objects back from when that disk was hundreds of times more dense than it is today. In a few moments you'll see the disk of these small bodies, boom, just sh shattered as the slight motion of those planets migrating in the interactions of resonances dramatically changes the stability of various orbital configurations. Yet another dimension that our exoplanets are teaching us about our own solar system has to do with the types of planets that are out there. If we look at the solar system, the planets Jupiter and Saturn, Neptune, Uranus, Earth, we sort of have three classes of planets. We have the giant planets Jupiter and Saturn, those ice giants, much smaller and cooler, and the rocky planets like Earth and the other inner planets. When we go out and study exoplanets, we find there's a wide range of planet densities for giant planets. There's planets that are similar to Uranus and Neptune, but there's some that are in the middle, surprisingly smaller than Jupiter, but uh, more massive than Neptune. Similarly, there's some planets that are intermediate between those of the ice giants, Neptune and Uranus, and Earth. Are these planets super-Earths that are rocky and more massive than the Earth? Or are they mini-Neptunes, worlds that are, the radius is dominated by hydrogen gas enveloping a small little rocky core that has a surface once again with immense pressures like Neptune and Uranus. Recently, Kepler's announced the discovery of those Kepler 9 B and C planets, which you see are comparable to Saturn. And there's also a hint of a possible planet candidate uh, that's not yet confirmed, but is, would be one of the most uh, smallest planets to be date found by Kepler. Here you can see it's intermediate in size between the Earth and the ice giants Neptune and Uranus. Hopefully with time, Kepler will find more of these and enable us to characterize them, study them so that we can learn about what these planets are like and how they compare to the own planets of our solar system. 
Once we find these planets, whether through the ground-based methods or space missions like Kepler, we're able to study them in more detail. I mentioned the first observations of the Hubble Space Telescope to measure the atoms in the atmosphere of HD 209458. Subsequently, similar observations have been made with the Spitzer Space Telescope and most recently ground-based telescopes like the Grand Telescopio Canaries. We're able to study the atmospheres, the atoms and molecules, the temperatures and pressures, the atmospheres of these planets to learn not just about their orbital properties, but also about the compositions and nature of their atmospheres and contrast those to those of the planets our own solar system. In many cases, they have wild chemistries, things like titanium oxide clouds, methane dense atmospheres that are wildly different from any analogs in our own solar system. So having seen the overview of the rapid progress of exoplanets over the past two decades, we're left with the exciting prospects for the future. What new future space missions, ground-based telescopes and instruments will enable us to characterize and discover more planets, learn more about our own solar system, and answer some of those basic questions about where did we come from? Thank you. This program is brought to you by Caltech. Visit us at caltech.edu.